welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about Ayn Rand, a writer who's been dead for 40 years, yet who continues to trend on social media, most recently because our new health secretary, Savid Javid, claims to reread Rand every single year. Now, I'm joined by two people who know a bit about Ayn Rand. One of them is Lisa Dugan, who's a professor at New York University and the author of a fine short study of Rand called Mean Girl, Ayn Rand and the Culture of Greed. And Adam Roberts, who's a professor at Royal Holloway uh, in the University of London and who is also a science fiction novelist and has recently read and blogged, not entirely favourably, about the reissued edition of Atlas Shrugged. Welcome both. Now both of you are, let's say, to some extent, Rand sceptics, and it's quite easy to find Rand sceptics and quite hard to find people who adore her, at least certainly in the sort of literary world. But I want to start by asking, therefore, not what's bad about her, but what's good about her. What is it that causes this writer of enormously long books who hasn't been around for quite some time, to continue to seem to have such a vital part in our public life? Well, you know, I, what I argue for in Mean Girl, and uh, what I'll argue for now, is her importance, right? So whatever one wants to say about the literary quality, and there are a lot of complicated things to say about the quality of her writing, but um, her importance is indisputable. So it's like if we want to understand our current political economic moment, she's as important as reading Milton Friedman or knowing the history of the International Monetary Fund, right? If we want to understand how this political economy came to be, a writer like Ayn Rand provides the kind of emotional architecture, the affective energy. She motivates and converts people into advocates of this very cruel, unequal political economy. And the methods through which she does it are very important to understand. Uh, how it is she recruits her writing, her, her, her fiction really, almost no one reads her nonfiction. But her, just like the tiny group of cult follower objectivists actually read the nonfiction, most people read Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, and it provides a kind of romance novel, melodrama, adventure fiction architecture for a kind of emotional allegiance that then pairs itself with an intellectual, a political allegiance to this forms of this, morphing forms of this political economy. So, you know, it's not exactly a positive, you know, you were asking for positive, it's not entirely positive, but it is, I think, she is important and we need to understand her and the way her work circulates and why it has the wide impact that it has. It's really completely self-defeating to just, you know, succumb to ridicule, which is very easy to do. But when we succumb to ridiculing her, then we really completely fail to understand the forces with which we contend. I'd second that. And I think Lisa's absolutely right about her continuing importance. And as, as you're saying, Sam, it's not that I have any sympathy politically, ideologically, to her project. But I think perhaps because I'm, I've grown up and I still, even in my dotage, read a great quantity of science fiction, she reads a bit like that. She reads like the kind of Robert Heinlein 1950s right-wing American science fiction vibes. I mean, Atlas Shrugged is a science fiction novel. It's a kind of future dystopia. It has lots of science fiction elements. It's got a weird 
uh, energy that's being manufactured out of static electricity in the air and a super strong steel and it's a it's really a it takes us on a path of dystopia which is very popular nowadays in order to come up with this weird randian version of what utopia might look like at the end of the novel and as far as the novelist goes she's not a very sophisticated writer she's very kind of her characterization is very crude her dramatic conception is very one-dimensional but she does have some kind of gnashing furious energy about her writing which makes her very readable you have to admit it atlas shrugged a thousand eleven hundred pages long you just read right through it it's like it, it reminds me a bit when I read it of, of Dynasty, the old 1980s uh, kind of TV soap. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of kind of love for super powerful, dominant, masculine, capitalist Americans and all these evil villains who are these moochers and looters and bad characters. It's, it is melodrama, but melodrama has its place, you know. I mean, it's, it's... Oh, yeah. It's important across the political spectrum. All the, the entire political spectrum deploys melodrama. She deploys it incredibly effectively. I'm, I'm wondering, since you're interested in science fiction, Adam, and you write science fiction, I know, have you read Anthem? I have. I not, not only have I read Anthem, but I have listened many, many times to yeah, the yeah. prog rock band Rush. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it, there's a lot of science fiction kind of, and fantasy and stuff yeah. mingled in with prog rock, which I also have a very soft spot for. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't... It, it won't be cancelled now. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's right. So Neil Peart, the, the drummer in, in Rush, was fascinated by Ayn Rand, was a, was a bit of a random. He's, he's dead now. He's a great, he was a great prog and rock drummer. And he took this science fiction novella that Lisa's talking about and Rush made it into this kind of tremendous, crashing, stadium rock, kind of long prog rock song, which is exactly the right idiom for it and for Rand's ideas. I mean, that's... And it is, it's going to sound a little condescending of me, and I don't entirely mean it in a condescending way, because as you can see, because I love science fiction, there's still a part of me that is in hock to my, my teenage years, my adolescence, but there is something kind of adolescent about Rand's whole shtick, about her philosophy and everything. She's especially popular in high school. That's where people read her in high school and she they become accolades and everything, mostly mostly in high school. But her particular genius is in drawing on all of these genres that are kind of core cultural genres. So science fiction is one, but romance is another, right? So she's all the romance fiction, right? The plucky young heroine and the brutish emotionally unavailable masculine achieving heroine and that you know she does the conventions of romance fiction i mean it's like this far from 50 shades of gray right the way that she writes atlas shrug and the fountainhead it's like very deeply draws on romance fiction it draws on a long history of imperial in adventure fiction right with like hordes of inferior people threatening the superior ones and she read that as a child she read sort of british imperial fiction she came out she she really has produced uh, all of these images that are based in uh, really profound orientalism the asiatic mob is a very core kind of image that she uses over and over again in her fiction so she has you know these notions of the superior civilized european and then american who lords it over and is indifferent and contemptuous towards 
the hordes, right? The racialized, poor hordes. So it's both a kind of imperial adventure fiction she's drawing on, and then as a kind of capitalist mythology. She doesn't actually understand capitalism at all, which is hilarious. But she, you know, because she's the... She's got a weird thing about the gold standard, hasn't she? Yeah, her misunderstanding of capitalism is is really profound. In in the Fountainhead, she's trying to represent Hollywood really it, it, within the framework of architecture, and her hero villain is Gail Wynand in the Fountainhead, who's the newspaper publisher who fails because he panders to the masses, and that's her figure for Cecil B. DeMille, who she was a scriptwriter for when she first went to Hollywood. She worked for Cecil B. DeMille, and she worshipped him, and she was a an extra on some of his early sets and she wrote scripts for him but she turned on him she found him to be an enormous disappointment because he was a box office chaser right so she accused him of being a box office chaser meaning he was interested in making money more than he was interested in supporting like her vision of the independent avant-garde artist freed from the mob well you know Basically, she was accusing him of being a capitalist, <laughs> and she was damning him for being a capitalist, right? He's a box office chaser. So she set herself up as the great advocate of capitalism, but she fundamentally misunderstood it. She kind of merged it with this, her notion of the creative artist who's up against uh, the mediocre. But uh, that's actually a source of her appeal and not a source of people not being appealed to by her. I don't know if either of you saw the Ivo von Hove stage production of The Fountainhead. So Ivan von Hove is a gay social democrat, right? He fell in love with The Fountainhead. He staged it. There was a big showing of it here at BAM in the Brooklyn Academy, a music which got positive reviews attended by all of the cultural elite in New York because he interpreted it as about the artist against the mediocre committee that tries to, you know, interfere with the vision. It's a literal staging of the of the theme of the Fountainhead and the script from the Fountainhead, but it's amazing that in his allegiance to this creative artist against the mob, he fails to see or recognize or hear, and so does the audience, the incredible cruelty and condescension and inequality and brutality in the actual dialogue right that's being spoken on stage so it's it's a way in which she takes these you know thematic you know central aspects of how people understand their individualism their americanism and then she merges it with this kind of capitalist brutality right and and inequality and brutality in a way that it's not only the right wing that takes her up Right, she gets read by some feminists. She's, you know, critic. Of her her female, uh, her, her heroines do not marry or reproduce. Right, they have multiple lovers. Sounds good on paper to some. Right, a lot of queer readers really identify with the critique of family, church, and state. So there are all these multiple ways in because she combines so many themes but then she drags people along with her sometimes unselfconsciously not really understanding what they're signing up for i'm interested in the the sexual politics of it actually because as you say you know on some level particularly in say atlas shrugged you know dagny is this sort of looks a bit like a feminist icon. You know, she's much cleverer and more capable than most of the men. But 
there is a sort of Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. She somehow needs for the erotics of the book to be dominated by even more powerful men. Yes. And how does does Rand sort of square that with her otherwise immaculately kind of transactional... Yeah, I mean, her total allegiance to the dominant and the superior is confused and contextualized. She's made ambivalent by both being a woman and being Jewish, right? Those two things make her an outsider to the unrelieved, you know, dominant figure of Western civilization. So she's massively ambivalent about both Jewish depictions and female depictions. So she both makes heroic depictions and she enshrines inferiority in the same, right, in the same depiction. So very much Fifty Shades of Grey, right? So her heroines are fierce, they're independent, they run railroads, they, you know, they're, they're, they have all they have a lot of power of course they're always sexy and thin and tall and blonde you know european and but they always submit to a masterful man right and that is her in the end that's the definition for her of femininity she's incredibly critical of a kind of complacent goyish ruling class and an advocate of the outsider who's different and so forth but she also depicts villainy. She, there are anti-Semitic tropes all through her writing. You know, her villains like Ellsworth Toohey in, um, in, uh, in The Fountainhead is described uh, in, with anti-Semitic tropes, right? The, the description of him is thoroughly anti-Semitic, and that is proof of his inferiority as compared to the more Aryan dominant figures. So there's always this ambivalence on those two fronts, right, where she's advocating for a kind of outsider, for a power, and she's also completely capitulating to the uh, way that gender and religion and, you know, ethnicized religion operate. Super, super ambivalent. It is very interesting, isn't it? Because it's one of the things that puzzles me about her posthumous reputation, that she's, in one sense, partly through her kind of acolyte, Alan Greenspan, but also through the fact that the Republican Party in America is full of Randians. You're talking about how Sajid Javid is a big Randian... Uh, Paul Ryan cites Rand all the time. You think Silicon Valley is full of Randians? Yeah. But it's, it's, I mean, it's Silicon Valley. You can sort of see it's trying to, it's trying to square Rand's, as you say, her atheism, her materialism, with this very kind of religious. I mean, she was very anti-racism, interestingly, because she saw racism as a kind of collectivism. You have to, you have to join yeah. the white race in order to be racist against blacks or Jews or whatever it might be, and that was anathema to her. She hated the idea of being part of a collective. She was a radical individualist, and yet here we are. We've got the the contemporary GOP, which is quite structurally racist, which is very religious, which is all you know patriotic and all these kind of an, yeah. un. Ayn Rand values that still sort of embraces her. I mean, Donald Trump is like an Ayn Rand villain, right? Crony capitalism, uh, panders to the religious right, a nationalist, she hated nationalism, you know, she hated religion, she hated nationalism, she hated crony capitalism, she hated, you know, he's everything that she portrayed as a kind of villain, but he sees himself as Howard Rourke. 
right? So he represents yeah. himself as Howard Rourke. And so he waxes, you know, I mean, he probably hasn't read it at all. He's just been heard about it, right? But he represents himself as her, as a, as a Howard, as Howard Rourke. And he talks about Ayn Rand as an important influence. It's like extremely commonplace for people to read her, adopt her, love her novels, and then just shed the parts of it that don't fit, you know? So, but that's very much like, um, you know, the political moment right now, right? In the United States, we have the sort of hard libertarian neoliberals very much in bed with the nationalist, white supremacist, religious right. That doesn't, the alliance doesn't make any sense, but it does produce things like, you know, tax cuts for the rich and uh, anti-abortion people on the Supreme Court. So Ayn Rand fits that moment, right, because she get, they take pieces of her and leave other pieces of her, and they just make it work in this, which is, a, a, you know, a common way of reading, right, of taking up ideological allegiance. But, but she's very anti that, isn't she? I mean, her whole thing is if your system doesn't hold together from top to bottom, you have to check your premises because you've got something yeah. wrong. Yeah, wrong. yeah. Was she aware of these contradictions or, or, or did she think also, look, the delivery mechanism for my philosophical programme is this series of kind of science fiction romantic potboilers. Yeah. This is maybe not the most satisfactory delivery mechanism for something that's supposed to be a coherent philosophical programming. She did stop writing novels after, I mean, she, first of all, she was writing a lot of novels because she wanted to have the success. She needed the money, writing screenplays and novels. And then she finally had the success. The Fountain, the Fountain Hem was a big hit. Atlas Shrugged was a huge hit. But that was 57. And then she lived through to the 80s and she didn't write any more fiction after that. She tried to put it all into her non-fiction, which, as Lisa says, nobody reads, except outside the kind of hardcore of the objectivist kind of yeah. group. The other thing I'd say about that is that the Atlas Shrugged is full of exciting things. You know, trains are exciting and it's a kind of big dystopian vision and dystopia is very exciting. Whereas The Fountainhead is about buildings, about architecture. And it's a very odd novel in that respect. People generally don't get so excited by buildings as they do by, you know, trains and society breaking up and so on. You can see why she loved buildings. You can see why that, as you're saying, Sam, that unless unless your foundations are secure, your building won't stand up. And that is her philosophy you know, materialized, objectified into the world. And, you know, Sam, in, in, in relation to your question about her, whether she was self-knowing, <laughs> absolutely not. So she represented herself and really truly believed herself to be purely rational when, you know, her entire history is so riven with anger and passion and you know it's just her the way she led the objectivist group when her secret lover got involved with another woman she blew up the entire objectivist cult she was so outraged and so completely unbelieving that he could choose uh, less uh, you know someone who was uh, inferior as a as another lover so she rationalized that as completely about reason she was rejecting him because he had made an irrational choice in picking someone who was inferior, when in fact she was in a completely psychotic, jealous rage, which basically she never recovered from. I mean, that, that incident really affected her to the end of her life. So she, she was unaware of her uh, contradictions. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's the reason why she's not taken seriously in philosophy departments, as I understand it, although she desperately wanted to be taken seriously as a philosopher, she thought she was the heir of Aristotle and you know, she worked very hard at her philosophy. But she never got past what philosophers call the is-ought 
problem, which is David Hume's famous kind of statement. How do we get an ethics? You can't go from a description of the way things are, the is, to the way things should be. You can't say, as it might be, you know, evolution depends upon heterosexual sex. Therefore, homosexuality is wrong and should be outlawed. That's that's just a false step. That's not how we work out what our ethics are. But for Ayn Rand, it kind of was. Everything had to be grounded in something rational and factual as she understood it. And it meant that she was, I think you're right, Lisa, blind to what actually motivates human beings and how we actually fit together in the world. Yes, Miss Rational based her male heroes on her ad adoration for a serial killer, right? I mean, it, she, <laughs> this uh, guy, William Hickman, who in 1920s LA had murdered a girl and was a really brutal, horrible murder. murder. He was put on trial. And uh, she wrote about him extensively in her journal, how much she admired him and his cruelty and his standing up for himself and his not apologizing and the way the mob hounded him. And so she used that as, in some way, the model of the kind of, you know, the different versions of her hero. So put that alongside the claim to absolute rationality. And, you know, it's why what she's not taken seriously by in the literary establishment, she's not taken seriously in the philosophical world, she's not taken seriously by those, you know, elites, but she achieved a mass readership without getting her any decent reviews or promotion by the publisher or advertising or anything. A mass readership among mainly business people and professionals and mid-level, middle-class, entirely white but both genders, middle class, you know, professional managerial business readership. And it's a, it was a mass readership without any endorsement or promotion. I think it still is. I think it still is a mass readership, particularly in North America. She still sells many, many copies of her books. She does have a slightly different vibe over there than she does here, doesn't she? I mean, the, her purchase on the political establishment in the States seems to be more routine that it, I mean, Sajid Javid is an outlier in that respect, is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I she's read internationally, you know, she's uh, translated all over the place, but she seems to be a, a particularly American phenomenon in terms of the mass readership and so forth. And I'm sure that, you know, there are British readers who can identify with a lot of and Ayn Rand, but I don't think it's as, you know, her Americanness is very marked. It's because America is her... I mean, she's born in St. Petersburg, she kind of flees the Russian Revolution, but America is her home, is her spiritual home, that she's able to entirely reinvent herself. She's born Alyssa Rosenbaum, she makes this new character, Ayn Rand, and she, you know, self-creates, and that's only in America, as the, as the phrase goes. And I'm not sure it does go across in Europe in the same way. No, I mean, she started out idealising European civilization As a young girl in St. Petersburg, it was really uh, British and German, you know, conquerors, right, that she admired. But she shifted. By the time she was older, she went to the, mo the movies. The Hollywood movies started showing in St. Petersburg, and she started to idolise the, the United States as being what she saw in the movies, right, and as a, a space of pure capitalism that left aside the old uh, European civilization. So then she headed straight for Hollywood, where she had this idealized version of capitalism and what the United States was, and was deeply invested in that. So, How traumatic was the Russian Revolution for her? It was the defining event for her. Adam, have you read We the Living? I have, yes, I have. It's a very, you know, again, it's very, you know, it's a strangely compelling read. It's very... 
again, melodramatic. It's a kind of fictionalised version of her life in the revolution and surviving in yeah. her family. Yeah, I mean, I think her entire edifice of her of her political, emotional, intellectual life is built on her rage at the Russian Revolution. And it's really very much reflected in that first novel, We the Living. And We the Living is, you know, it's it's a very, again, you know, like she's so contradictory. It's a, It can be read in, in, in many different ways. It's an absolute damnation of the Russian Revolution, but it's also incredibly funny about bureaucracy and authoritarianism. I mean, it, the critique of bureaucracy and authoritarianism is laugh-out-loud funny. And it actually got taken up under Mussolini <laughs> as being an anti-fascist novel. And people started calling it We the Dead and identifying with there was a film based on it. And people read it as anti-fascist, which then when Mussolini had brought it in and showed it, sponsored it at a film festival because he thought of it as anti-communist. And when people began seeing the film at any rate as anti-fascist, then he exiled the filmmaker and banned the film and you know but it's one of those things where it just can be read these really different ways and it she isn't often funny but uh we the living has probably more of her humor in it than the other novels it's, it's pretty funny well actually anthem is pretty unselfconsciously funny too <laughs> that's you're right yeah. but it is interesting that she's drawn to cinema isn't it because cinema by its nature, is a collective kind of form of art. And you can see a divide in her life. She's, she's in Hollywood. The films never quite work out. She writes lots of screenplays. They make a movie of Fountainhead, and she doesn't like it. She's very excited that it's being made with Gary Cooper, this right-wing actor, but then she doesn't like the movie. And eventually she just up sticks and moves to New York. Where in New York, you can just be Ayn Rand. She can just be herself. I mean, the, po the point you make, Lisa, about the, the movie being taken to be first anti-communist and then anti-fascist, I mean... A sort of lazy social media dismissal of Rand is saying, oh, she's the favourite writer of all those fascists. But, you know, whatever charge you might lay against her, fascism is certainly antithetical, isn't it, to what she's doing? It is antithetical. I mean, she's anti-nationalist, you know, really overwhelmingly anti-nationalist. And also, um, you know, she was Jewish. So really, fascism was not something that she was going to. She was militantly, ferociously, fiercely anti-fascist and anti-authoritarian, right? So it's funny that these proto-fascist authoritarians then take her up, but they take her up for these pieces of like contempt, uh, a sense of superiority over the masses, the contempt and indifference towards people who are seen as inferior. They pick up all of these other elements and then leave aside the fact that she was an atheist and, and an anti-fascist. Um, um, so, I mean, they weren't wrong to read the film, uh, to read the, that film based on her first novel, We the Living as, as anti-fascist, though it was rooted primarily and profoundly in, in anti-Bolshevism, right, which was her, her inaugural, um, that is where she learned to hate solidarity, right, to hate, really to hate it and to see it as moronic and expropriative. And her father's pharmacy was nationalized during the Russian Revolution. And she was never, um, uh, she could see the behavior of the superior people in, 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 in the Soviet, in Russia as being caused when they behaved badly, it was because the, the, uh, the Soviets had made them that way. But when it came to the peasants and the workers, they were just brutish and stupid and 
selfish and, and they hated superiority and, um, and that was her vision of the Bolshevik mob and that she carried that, you know, to all of her other, it's there in Atlas Shrugged, right, the mob, yeah. 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 There is a kind of cruelty, actually, which I think you're right, Lisa, is actually a sort of eroticised cruelty. It kind of turns her on a little bit, cruelty, and that's part of the way it feeds through. But I'm also really intrigued that when she was growing up, her best friend was Vladimir Nabokov's daughter. So Nabokov's another Russian writer, I have to say, a vastly, vastly better writer. Nabokov came from a very wealthy family, and his, his wealth was appropriated by the Soviet state, and he had to flee, and he had to make a new life for himself. But when Nabokov writes... He's also sort of an individualist, in this, as is Rand, but his understanding of what it means to be an individualist is much more sophisticatedly aestheticised. And the thing that I think kills Rand as a novelist is, is exactly this sense that she refuses to accept contradiction. If there's a contradiction, something is wrong with your premises, examine your premises. You can't make great art unless you can embrace contradiction. You can't write the Antigone unless you understand that both Creon and Antigone have kind of right on their side. It's out of that conflict that you get the drama that makes great art. And she's just constitutionally averse to conflict. Everything she writes has this flattened melodramatic heroes, villains. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm using this as a platform to advance my, my very dogmatic understanding of the way the world works. It's like her entire personality was built on the denial of her own contradictions, right? So she could not acknowledge or own her own contradictions at all. She ferociously denied them. I'm not jealous. I object to your premises, right? But that became her her art, her politics, her her it, that that formation of the denial of contradiction became the foundation of her philosophical system and the basis for her writing. And so on the one hand, it makes her a failure as a as an artist, as you're saying. On the other hand, it also makes her a massive success. <laughs> because she's drawing from these narratives that are stark in that way that have deep, 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 deep roots in um, English-speaking, in the English-speaking world. You know, the, the civilizational drama, the, um, the romance narrative, the sci-fi elements, the, you know, all of the uh, genres that she draws on, and the his historical, the cruelty, right, the foundation of western civilization on on murder right on genocide and cruelty and and indifference and that's deeply drawn through her fiction and then eroticized but it is a central core aspect of the history of our cultures and she narrativizes it and eroticizes it in a way that speaks to people on this very it feels very familiar right like as well as being exciting it also feels deeply and profoundly familiar these 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 stories she was i mean that erotics i mean i think you write in your book lisa that she's she is you know her success wasn't in putting these ideas across but in making them sexy is she always i mean one thing that really struck me reading Atlas Shrugged, was that Enrand, who by all accounts was a very, you know, fiercely against homosexuality, made the relationship between Francisco and Hank about as super gay as yeah. any relationship in a mainstream yeah. novel I've read, you know. I uh, know. I mean, like, there's so much uh, gay queer fan fiction because there's so much homoeroticism in those books. But it's all male-male, right? 
It, there's no female-female homoeroticism, none. All of the eroticism is, 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 is all the, it's either hetero or male homo because she eroticized this dominant masculinity, you know, Aryan masculinity as being the, the most desirable thing. So there's tons of male homoeroticism. There's no female homoeroticism. Was she aware of doing that, do you think? Do you no. Think? Oh, heavens no. No, no, no. And also one of her best novelist friends was probably a lesbian. I mean, her closest female friend in her entire life, Isabel Patterson, who was also a right-wing writer. Um, if you look at the life history it and the photographs and everything, it seems like a possibility, a distinct possibility that that was the case. So, no, she has no... And, and the man she was married to, the man she cast as her husband, Frank O'Hara, incredibly good-looking guy, an actor, and but he stopped working, you know, very a few years into their marriage. And everyone describes him as like this incredibly sweet, passive man who kept peacocks, and he was a florist. And she tried to represent him as an Ayn Rand hero because his jaw looked like that, right? But in fact... You know, he's got all the characteristics of a, uh, he could have been a, a gay, a closeted gay man. We don't know this and I'm not claiming that, but you know, it seems he certainly was not her sort of, you know, hetero, masculine, sexy hero. He was not that. He just looked like that, but he wasn't that. And he ended up, you know, dying of alcoholism, Frank O'Hara, um, while she had, uh, this affair with her acolyte, Nathaniel Brandon, actually Nathan Blumenthal. They all changed their names to get right. rid of the Jewishness of all of their names. Right? No, no. And, and, you know, her typewriter was around. Right, so it could have been that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, there are many, many, many theories, as you say, but nobody really knows, like, how, how she, there's no consensus about how she, how she hit on that name. But it does hide both gender and Jewishness, right? The two things that she was ambivalent, you know, profoundly ambivalent about. And, and her entire circle, they were all all Jewish, her, her cult, right, her inner cult. And most of them changed their names or in some other way tried to hide that origin point. And uh, on the other hand, there was an affinity there, right? They were all together in something they called the collective. So when they were anti-collective. So they're just, you know, the contradictions are so, they're almost like cartoonish, the contradictions. Um, Did she ever, I mean, contradictions aside, can we talk meaningfully of a development in her thought or would that be anathema to her? I mean, did she change her worldview between, you know, leaving Russia and the end of her life? Was there, was, was there any big Wittgensteinian shift where she went, you know, I got it wrong about the gold standard? I don't think she ever admitted that she got anything wrong, but I think there is a shift away from kind of cinema and a more cinematic kind of understanding of what the world is about. 
towards something where when she when she leaves the west coast and she moves over to new york then she does become a kind of a guru really a kind of she gives lots of, in, of, of lectures and speeches and is going on telly all the time and she gathers acolytes around her and instructs them and in how to live their lives and what the truth is and there's a sort of shift of emphasis there i think also she she when she left russia she was uh, trying to leave behind very stark pessimism. And We the Living shows the pessimism, right? The heroes die, at the, the hero dies at the end of uh, We the Living. There's a dark vision, um, a grim, tragic vision that then she uh, translates into a very optimistic vision, right? Capitalism triumphant in this new land of freedom and and, and she becomes somewhat sunny, right? And uh, But then when Hollywood doesn't work out <laughs> for her and she becomes disillusioned with Cecil B. DeMille and the capitalist, the collect, you know, capitalism is a collective enterprise. And so she becomes super disillusioned with the reality of capitalism. She starts to become very grim again. By the end of her life, she was totally depressive, dark, and grim. But there's a little arc where she's a moment in her life, uh, and actually it was Isabel Patterson who turned her on to all of this American literature, American political literature and so forth, that's much more sunny about the common man and so forth. And she had a moment of being, having a more optimistic view, uh, and that's the, you know, the end of uh, the Fountainhead, right? But then it goes back down um, again. And it's, I mean, one of the reasons that Patterson and she kind of fell out is because Patterson was religious. Patterson believed in God. And it's interesting to think what Rand might have done if she'd accepted that. Then she would have fallen in line with a kind of Republican Party, right-wing American consensus. But she didn't. She held out against that. And towards the end of her life, I mean, this is one of the things that's sometimes thrown up by people who want to twit Ayn Rand, is that she was a heavy, heavy smoker all her life. And she got lung cancer, which smoking will do that to you. And she kind of valorised smoking. She said, there's a fire in the soul of man. And it's a good thing to have a cigarette with a fire in it that actualizes this. So you've got, you know, lung cancer. And then it being America, it's very expensive to get health care in America. She ended up on, on Medicare, as I understand. Social Security and Medicare she ended up on, yes. And also she denied to the end that her cancer was caused by her smoking. Yeah, she's a tragic figure, you know. I mean, she's a, she's a, a horrifying but also quite a sad and tragic figure. And... And one would be tempted to diagnose her, right, as a malignant narcissist and a sociopath. And the problem with doing that is that then you take her out of history, right? You, in some way, then you make her uh, a singular person rather than seeing that she actually was part and parcel of a certain set of historical forces and that the culture itself maybe has aspects of malignant narcissism and sociopathy rather than assigning it all to as kind of an individual pathology. But it's, it's hard to resist it, you know, to pathologize her individually. Is there a sense in among her contradictions and complications and, you know, personal psychological twists, that she may have got hold of something. I mean, I just remember being struck reading, you know, the money speech that Francisco makes. This is a really quite a good contrarian line saying, look, why should money be the root of all evil? It's the ultimate token of fair exchange. You know, it's a, it's a very invigorating essay. Is there something you could take out of Rand that you'd say there is something good here? Yeah, well, she's very good at sort of taking the outsider position without apology, a certain, what she perceives as an outsider position without apology. She's very good at a kind of fierce defense of what is not considered good, 
right? So, and her speeches, she worked particularly in those novels, very hard on those speeches, right? Those 60-page speeches and the radio address, the John Galt radio address and so forth. And it's very uh, forceful and inspirational to people who feel like they're up against it. But of course, the irony, and, and this is so clear in American politics, right, with the rise of whites, you know, the, it's not, it's not, white supremacy is not new, but it's having its big moment right now. Framing that as the outsider position, right? Like, like speaking this as the oppressed outsider position that you're speaking for the people who are pushed to the margins. And she's excellent at that, at representing the dominant as the outsider. That's very current. That is anti-racism is the real racism. Right. You know, attacking right. sexism, that's the real sexism. One of the reasons why she has this reputation for being a kind of adolescent Think of that's that stage in life when your your parents, you're a little kid and your parents say, eat your greens, tidy your room, you do what you're told. But there has to come a stage when you move out from the family home. Well, and that involves saying, I'm not going to tidy my room. I won't eat my greens. I'm going to go out with my friends. And that, that is a, there's a part of that which is, I mean, I don't want to be fatuous about it, but there's a part of that that is psychologically necessary and healthy because you, you can't carry on living under your parents' shadow all your life. And it's no accident that most people who become super fans of hers read, read her in high school and that the Ayn Rand Institute distributes the books free to high schools all across the United States. They distribute Atlas Shrugged to high schools for free because it's in high school, it's because it is exactly an adolescent kind of psychological moment that she's capturing that it's high schoolers who are most devout uh, readers of Ayn Rand. Well... She'll be with us for many years yet, I think. Um, for helping me to understand who is John Galt, I'd very much like to thank Lisa Duggan and Adam Roberts. Thanks, both of you. A pleasure to speak to you. And uh, Thank you. Hopefully Sajid will listen in. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.